0: You're listening to the Faith Roots audio podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Welcome to this part of the In From the Beginning series. We're going to change our flow a little bit here. What we've covered up until now are some of the more well-known Bible stories and well-known festivals, and uh, we've talked about how all of those things were given by God to shadow things that would really happen in the future. Now we're going to change our course just a little bit, because what I want to show you is I believe that the book of Genesis especially in the first 20, 21, 22 chapters, shows the book of Revelation in reverse. Now, it doesn't happen on a chapter-by-chapter basis. I want to forewarn you about that. I think you'll become very confused if we approach it that way. But there appear to be at least seven sequences in those first chapters of Genesis that are reflected in the book of Revelation. Some of them have very positive fulfillments some of them have reversal fulfillments in other words what is positive in genesis may wind up being negative in the book of revelation although two things may be linked together we'll see that in just a minute but i do want you to read this carefully and mark the scriptures make sure you pay attention to the references read these things for yourselves Understand that this is very allegorical, it's highly symbolic, but that doesn't mean it cannot be used to teach. Now listen to what Isaiah said, because Isaiah lends support to this in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember you, the things named in in advance from age past times, for I am the mighty one. There is none else, the adorable, and there is none like me, making clear from the first what is to come, and from past times the things which have not so far come about. I say that my plan shall stand. I accomplish my every purpose. God has a plan. He also reveals His plan, and He says that you can tell something about His plan By looking at the very beginning, you can see the time of the end. In Ecclesiastes 1.9, Solomon writes to say, "...the thing that has been is the thing that shall be, and the thing that shall be is the thing that has been." So I do believe that's very true generally, but I also believe that it's true specifically. And you can see these things in Scripture. There are numbers of parallels Um, if there were only five or ten maybe, it wouldn't be worth bringing up. But there are at least 40 that seem to shout at us from the book of Genesis that are reflected in the book of Revelation. And the late Bible scholar and commentator E.W. Bullinger In his book, the Companion Bible, uh, isolates 30 of these parallels over 100 years ago. He shows us these, and had he lived till today in modern times, I'm quite certain he would have uh, been able to point out many, many more because of the events of history that have unfolded in the last 100 years. Uh, Genesis not only predicts future events, but it seems to lay out a certain order for their fulfillment. And I would call it a general order. That doesn't mean that we can get down to days and years and months and say, okay, this is gonna happen here. This, is gonna... But generally, we can see that one thing follows another. Now this does not set a date for the rapture of the church, but it does seem to give us interesting shadow events that reflect a particular order. In order to appreciate this, Here's the rule. The Genesis types must be examined in sequences. Let me give you an example. The Noah sequence is uh, a three-chapter sequence from the beginning of the flood till the end of the flood. And then we go into a totally new sequence in the post-flood era. Uh, These sequences then are reflected later on in the book of Revelation. In some cases, they're total reversals of what happened in Genesis. In some cases, they're very similar to what happened in Genesis. And um, these things appear throughout Scripture, and I've pointed this out several times in the last uh, few podcasts. Uh, for instance, the Jesus entered the world, uh, and the two people who uh, welcomed him into the world were Joseph and Mary. And it's significant that his clothing is spoken of. Jesus left this world when he was crucified, and the two people that are spoken of uh, were Joseph and Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea, and his clothing, the linen cloth, is spoken of. And so we see this repetition. Uh, Here's another one. Moses was hidden at his birth to keep him from being killed but he was also hidden at his death to keep him from being worshiped. And I'm quite sure that we'll find many, many, many others of these parallels where there were these things that happened at the beginning, at the end, uh, and only God could have directed these things. The intent of all prophecy and prophetic scripture is this, edification, exhortation, and comfort, not fear and not worry. And it's unfortunate, but many people who teach prophecy do it in order to provoke gloom and doom. And that's not God's way. God wants us to be aware of what's coming so that we can flow with his plan, but not just flow with it, rest in his plan. He has called us to edification, exhortation, and comfort. Listen, When you read and hear prophecy, ask yourself this question Did this teacher, did this teaching leave me with a great big God and a little bitty devil? Uh, If that's the case, then you are on to something. If it's a great big devil and a little bitty God, oh boy, that, that isn't the flow of God's teaching on prophecy. His teaching is always to bring about edification, exhortation, and comfort. Prophecy is not given to make gazers of us. And you know, I say that because the disciples stayed there and gazed into the heavens. So much so that the two men who were there to see Jesus off who were witnesses, we don't know if they're angels or men, but they said to the apostles, why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus shall so return in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And they had a job to do. So they were immediately sent back to occupy. And I don't think we have to choose between working for the Lord And anticipating, a lot of times what happens is people want to do nothing but study prophecy. They run to this conference, that conference. The only teaching they listen to is prophecy teaching. That's unfortunate. Uh, That's not the whole of God's Word. It's a part of God's Word. And that creates a ditch. And in reaction to that, there are numbers of pastors who come back and say, I don't want anything to do with it at all. And that's a mistake too, because one-third of the Scriptures are prophetic. Prophetic. I believe that what we learn through the correct application of prophecy helps us to occupy with more understanding and more uh, balance than we would otherwise. We always have to keep God's plan in view, so we don't want to fall into prophecy paralysis. I believe, as we get into this, that the first two chapters of the book of Genesis are reflections of the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Genesis 1:1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Listen to Revelation 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. You've got a beginning and an ending here. Genesis 1:10, And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And Revelation 21.1 says, and there was no more sea. So you see this bouncing back and forth that when God addressed something in Genesis, at the same place in the reversal, at the end of the book of Revelation, he comes back to address it again. Genesis 1.3, then God said, let there be light. There was light, and that's on the first day of creation. Let me read Genesis 1.14 and 15. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. That's the fourth day. Now, this is fascinating. There is light on the first day of creation. It's the first thing God created. Uh, but God had to uh, come back and create the solar system, all the stars and the, the planetary universe. He did that later. So there was a primeval light that came from God, On the first day of creation, but the light from the sun didn't happen till the fourth day. So that's very clear from Genesis 1. Now listen to Revelation 21, verses 23-24, and you're going to see the reversal of this. And the city had no need of the sun. Doesn't mean it wasn't there, just they didn't need it. Neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. So you've got light without the sun and the moon. He had the same thing in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we go to Genesis 1, 16 and 17. Then God made two great lights to rule the day and to rule the night and to rule over the day and night. And um, then we look at Revelation 21, 25. And the gates of it, the new Jerusalem, uh, shall be shut at uh, "...shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there." So you see, day and night ordered in Genesis 1, but in Revelation 21, you see the suspension of night in the new city. In Genesis 1, 16 and 18 we see a little different assignment for the planetary bodies. And people don't stop to think about this. If you were an old timer, say 100 years ago, you would be much more aware of this. Those people were much more aware of seasons, much more aware of the nighttime sky. They could see it uh, more clearly. We have so much light pollution in our cities in North America that we have a hard time seeing the stars the way that the ancient people saw the stars. But listen to Genesis 1, 16, 18. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Now think about that for a minute. It's ruling the day. And the lesser light to rule the night, he made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to rule over the day and over the night. So he is saying here that the sun and the moon and the stars give an order to the earth. And they do. And uh, the old timers knew that. They planted their crops according to things they saw in the skies to the day length. They were very much aware of when to plant based upon the cycles of the sun and the moon. But we see also that in the book of Revelation, the sun, the moon, and the stars will also culminate in judgments that will be inescapable. In other words, they rule, they have an authority, uh, and, and 12 is the number of government. And so you see the 12 signs of the Zodiac, and we're not uh, pushing astrology here by any stretch, but you have to remember Satan never created anything. He is a corrupter. So the signs of the Zodiac were not created by Satan. They were corrupted by Satan to accomplish a different purpose. But in the beginning, they were ordained of God. Tradition says it was Enoch who identified those signs, and he used them to teach the story of the gospel it was called the star gospel. And so there were 12 of those in the circuit around the heavens. Now listen to Revelation 6.13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth. I don't believe that would be necessarily a sun from somewhere. It would be some kind of asteroid. Uh, that We would see some significant uh, collisions with earth. Uh, Revelation 6.13, Revelation 8.12, and the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, third part of the stars. That means 30%, the thirty percent of the light from the heavens will be blocked. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of the day, and the night likewise. Uh, and then Revelation sixteen eight, and the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. So there will be something that will happen atmospherically that will enable UV radiation from space and from our sun to burn people more significantly than it does today. Uh, we go to Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's image, which is man, was created to operate with authority and freedom. Satan comes along in the book of Revelation on the flip side of this, and he has an image, and see what happens with it. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, Revelation 13, 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast uh, should be killed. So you see the image of man or the image of God in Genesis uh, 1 is for authority and the freedom and the rule of man, but you see in Revelation that the image that Satan and the Antichrist bring is designed to bring bondage to the earth. So what we see is these amazing reversals. And so they are happening in sequence. This image of God uh, that we read about is early on, so it's at the very last that the image of the beast is brought forth to the earth, just before the end of the tribulation. That's when this beast image will be brought forth by Antichrist. Doesn't happen at the beginning, it happens near the end. And so you can see these sequences being revealed in Genesis, but when When we flip them, and it would be like taking two charts and flipping them up so they both touch and they're the reversal of each other. That's really what's happening here. And it doesn't happen chapter by chapter, story by story. It happens through a series of sequences. And we'll talk about that, and it'll become more obvious to you as we get deeper into this. We are in the paradise sequence right now, which would be Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so the paradise is what we read about in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. First two chapters of Genesis, the last two chapters of Revelation. The subject of both sequences would be paradise. And so we see the great paradise at the beginning and we see how that paradise will be restored at the end. There's a lot more to come. I'll see you in a minute. Welcome back. Now we're gonna pick up where we left off. We're talking about the sequences that we see in the book of Genesis that reversed show us the book of Revelation and end time events even before the book of Revelation uh, even before Revelation begins to happen. All right, let's pick up with Genesis 131. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Here's the reflection: Revelation 22, 3 and there shall be no more curse. So what God shows us early, He gets back to in the latter chapters. The earth will be returned to its original perfection. We'll get more into that later. In Genesis 2-9, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Uh, we look in Revelation 22:2, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, so we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but what I want you to see here is in Genesis 1, or 2 rather, when it talks about the tree of life, it also mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, when most people think about the tree in the middle of the garden, they think of it being one tree. The tree is that, that's a thou shalt not. And that's a false picture. That's not accurate. There were two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden. The tree of life was so powerful that had Adam eaten of its fruit, he would have lived forever. That's what the tree of life had the power to do. God had to protect that tree from Adam, and he had to keep Adam from eating the fruit of the tree of life after he sinned, lest he live forever in separation from God. So that's why God restricted access to the tree of life after the sin of Adam. Now, uh, we believe that the Garden of Eden was on the earth till the flood, and it was guarded by angels Uh, certain special kinds of angels who kept it from being penetrated. But it was to protect the way of the tree of life because God imbued it with power to give eternal life to people. Here's what I believe. I believe that it was Adam's mission to take every human being to the middle of the garden and lay before them a choice and teach them, here is the tree of death, don't eat it, And here is the tree of life. What will you do? And I believe as people chose to eat the tree of life, they made a choice. And that sealed them. They didn't have to live in temptation forever after. Uh, but, But you see, it didn't last very long. Adam very quickly ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the tree of life was no longer an option. And it's interesting that God chose a tree or a cross to bring life back to humanity. Now, this instructed me when I raised my kids. I saw something about the heart and character of God that was very, very uh, powerful to me as a dad. And that is, I never tell my kids, "'You can't do this.'" I always gave them choices. You can't do this, but I will let you do this. Uh, For instance, if there was a party that they were invited to, and I was very suspicious of the people who were throwing the party and didn't feel like that they were good influences on kids and that there wouldn't be a lot of authority at the house where the party would be held, I would say, no, you can't go. But here's what you can do why don't you guys have your own thing here? And uh, I'll buy all the pizza. You invite your friends over. And so I never just said, no, create a vacuum. You don't create a vacuum with kids. You always offer an alternative. I remember when my kids came to me for money and they wanted me to give them money, especially in the uh, nineties, they wanted Michael Jordan shoes in the eighties, nineties. Uh, and I, 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 I wouldn't just say no, 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 uh, I grew up with that, and, and it created a negativism in me about money. I wanted to overcome that. I taught my kids, well, yes, you can have those, depending on how hard you're willing to work. And so I gave my kids a job, and uh, I created work for them to do. So the answer was never just totally no, it's, well, here's another way. And I believe that's what God does with us. When He gives us a no, He's also got an alternative. There's something that's better. You may not see it immediately, but God always has alternatives. And that's what He had in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Genesis 1, 28. Uh, Then God blessed them. He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, What we see... If there is uh, healing for the nations from the leaves of the tree of life, there will be some natural people who will need to be healed. And that doesn't mean the earth will be filled with disease, but it's possible that there could be injuries and because you're going to have people with natural human bodies. Now that's a shock to a lot of people. The glorified body, the one like Jesus had after the resurrection, does not belong to everybody. That, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5, 6, and 7, is for the church. God has a special time frame to glorify people who believe in Him, and it's the church. The church is a unique place in God. And sometimes we just lump together all of the different people that follow God who believe in God. That's what happens in the book of Revelation. There are saints who are beheaded in the book of Revelation because of their faith. Some people will take and teach that, well, this is a picture of the church going through the tribulation. No, the church does not go through the tribulation. Nothing could be more clear. I'm adamant about that. Uh, But what I want you to see is there will be people in the tribulation who come to faith in Christ in the face of death and are willing to die for their faith, but they're not the church. And so we have to be careful that we don't just lump everybody together in one big group. God has different groups of people. We said this yesterday, or in the last teaching, 1 Corinthians 10.32, give no offense to the Jews, to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Paul talks about how God sees three distinctly different groups of people on planet Earth. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the Church of God. He's got a different program for each one. So when we read prophecy, it's important that we ask ourselves this question, to whom does this speak? Uh, Is it speaking to the church, or to the Jews, or to the Gentiles? And the judgment things that happen, especially in the book of Revelation, are written to Jewish people because this is time of Jacob's trouble, according to the book of Jeremiah, and it's written to Gentiles who do not have faith in Christ, and it's not written to the church. Now, the church has a totally different place. All right, Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four heads. Let's look at Revelation 22, 1, a reflection of this. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So you've got the river in Genesis, which turned into four different rivers, and you've got the river of life in Revelation that is restored. Now, the rivers in Genesis 2... I believe, represent the four flows of the Holy Spirit. And that's a totally different teaching. It's not for here and now. But uh, but these rivers started in the middle of the garden, and they branched and went out to all the earth. Four is the number of the world. It's the earth number, earth, air, fire, and water, the four major elements, the four major directions, northeast, southwest. Uh, and so the the Bible talks about the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Uh, so four is the earth number, Acts one you shall be witnesses unto me, and in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So four is the number of the earth uh, in the Old Testament when they. Gave a wave offering to the Lord. They waved the offering in four different directions. This was uh, 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 first fruits was like this. Uh, the Day of Pentecost it was like this. They waved the two loaves in four directions. It's symbolic of the message of God going to the four corners of the earth. All right, so that's what we see. This reflection here in Genesis of the river of life that is given in Genesis. It happens again in Revelation. Revelation 2, 1, 2, and 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So when God created everything... Everything was finished on the seventh day. God ended his work, which he had done. Was it because he was tired? (laughs) And I've read that before in books written to little kids. God was tired, so he rested. God was not the least bit diminished in any way. He's God. Uh, So he's omnipotent, so he doesn't get tired. So if he rested, he did it to set a pattern. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all of his work, which he had created and made. So what God did is He set up a pattern. Now, do we see a seventh-day rest in the book of Revelation? And the answer is yes. However, it's not a literal day. It is a period of 1,000 years. So let me read to you Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshiped the beast that would be Antichrist or his image. We talked about that earlier. uh, And had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. There's physical death and then there's the second death, which is total separation from God. But these will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Uh, Psalm 90 and verse 4 uh, speaks about a time frame of a thousand years with God being like a day. Peter echoes that in 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says, uh, don't be ignorant of this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He's quoting Psalm 9 in verse 4. And this is in 2 Peter three eight. So we see the witness, the double witness, when something is mentioned twice and it's backed up and it means it's a sure thing. This is a biblical teaching that God has days that are a thousand years long. I don't think that's poetic. I think it's very real that he measures time in those seven days. So the idea is that there are six days of man's work on the earth, and the seventh day, the seventh one thousand year period, is set aside as a day of eternal of millennial rest, and that's what you see in the book of Revelation. So God sets this pattern. Now, you see God referring in Genesis to mineral wealth, Genesis chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the whole, one which skirts the whole end of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and the onyx stone are there. Now listen to Revelation 21, 18 and 19. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto glass, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. So early in the Re- book of Genesis, when you're reading into the garden, God points us to the idea that there is great mineral wealth in the earth. Gold, bdellium, and onyx are mentioned, although we know there are many, many other things. Here we go in Revelation chapter 21, and we see that the gold is back and the jewels are back. And so you see the reversal here. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, and this is a significant passage because it is the first wedding. And so I'm going to read uh, from Genesis 2:22 and on. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that's quoted by Jesus, and it's also quoted by the Apostle Paul. So those exact words appear in the Scriptures three different times. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So Now what I want you to see about this, there's a wedding here. This is actually a wedding. You have two people coming together. They are brought together. We have God joining them, words are spoken, and Adam and Eve become husband and wife. And so we see the reflection of this in a wedding that's held in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." And then in Revelation 21, 9, and 10, uh, a man says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So we've got this uh, uh, amazing sequence here of a wedding in heaven, and we've got the saints clothed in fine linen. And here uh, we see in Revelation 19, 7, and 8, and... To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, Revelation nineteen, seven and eight. Uh, but yet it says in Genesis two, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So their clothing was spoken of or lack of. Uh, but we see the parallel. There was righteousness in both cases. It was right standing with God that mattered, and they had the right standing with God in the garden, therefore they were clothed with light. And uh, I don't think that they would be naked in the sense that we would be naked today if we took off all of our clothes. I think there was a light that emanated from the two of them uh, from within, that there would have been light in their bodies. And uh, I think the Scripture supports that. So they were clothed with light, and they're clothed with fine linen in the book of Revelation, and I believe that's also light too. I I, I think that any time a heavenly being is seen in Scripture in vision form. The the, the most amazing thing about them is that they have a a light coming about them, with the exception of angels appearing to be men. And they can do that from time to time, and when they do that, they're operating undercover. uh, But many, many times the heavenly being is so full of light, when Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, he was so full of light it blinded him. All right we see these sequences are continuing to be fulfilled. You've got a wedding in Genesis, wedding in uh, Revelation. You've got a river in Genesis, a river in Revelation. You've got precious stones in Genesis. You've got precious stones in Revelation. So we see these sequences responding to each other so that the end is declared from the beginning. I'll be back in just a minute. Well, we've discovered some very interesting parallels between Genesis and Revelation, and they're revealed through the sequences. And we're in what I would say is the first sequence of Genesis, which is the paradise sequence. It's over at the end of Genesis chapter 2. There's no more paradise after chapter 2. Chapter 3 is where we see the fall of man, and that's a sequence all unto itself. We will see it also reflected in the book of Revelation. But we're not done with sequence uh, 1, which is the paradise sequence, so let's read it. Genesis 1-2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this is a very interesting sequence because there is no darkness in God at all. So if God permitted a darkness to be here, it is because He is wanting to teach something with this darkness. First John 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Here's an interesting idea. In Genesis 1, it's repeated again and again, starts with verse five, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, third day, and so forth. So what we see is the darkness comes before the light. And the idea here is in man's walk with God, the darkness is what dominates at the beginning. There was a brief period of light, probably didn't last that long when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, but there was soon a corruption of that and darkness dominated and we have no real light to speak of until Jesus Christ. Now, the prophets came and they brought light for the people of Israel to walk in and God brought light for Abraham to walk in and so forth, but the real light came... In John 1, Jesus is described as the light who came, and we have the light prevailing at the end. So the evening and the morning that follows were the first day, second day, and so forth. So we see this picture. Now, what is God trying to say to us with this darkness being so near to the creation? Well, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, uh, the Scripture's very clear that God did not create the earth to operate in darkness. Now let me read it to you. It's Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain. Now in Hebrew, it is without form and void. He didn't create it without form form and void. I want to go back and read to you again Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void. Actually the word was there is not the regular word for was in the Hebrew language. It is the word became. So sometime after God created, and I don't believe long, long time. I don't believe in the millions of years. I believe that very quickly God permitted the earth to go into this darkness and without form and void for a reason. He wanted to teach something to humanity. And if it's true, then it's going to be reflected in the book of Revelation. So what that means is, in the book of Revelation, very near to the end of the wrap-up when Christ comes and conquers Satan and deals with the devil, and just before the paradise sequence, we're going to see some kind of of darkness. All right, Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to find it. Verse 7 is where we'll start. Now, when the 1,000 years have expired, Satan will be released from prison, "...will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and that's not the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 39." This is a spiritual uh, uh, reintroduction of those two spiritual forces. "...to gather them together to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. They went upon the breadth of the earth, they surrounded the camp of the saints... And the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. So this is interesting. When Jesus conquers Satan, when he deals with him in the book of Revelation, he does not personally touch him. He sends an angel to lock him up with a chain. The angel throws him into a bottomless pit. Obviously, this is symbolic, but it will literally happen in the future when Satan is restricted from operating on planet Earth for 1,000 years. But at the end of that 1,000 years, he will be released for a very short period of time. And at the end of that millennial reign of Christ on Earth, there will be millions of people on Earth... And there will be many, many of them who have no heart for God at all. In other words, they live in a paradise. Everything is perfect, but they have no heart for God. God wants them to make a decision. They will be deceived and lied to, not because God wants it. They have plenty of evidence for God's character, His goodness. They will have lived in this amazing bliss and paradise, but it's not enough. And here's what God's doing. He's showing us that we are more than our surroundings. And there's an idea, it's very pervasive in our culture, that we are all shaped by our environment, but that's not true. There are very good people who come out of horrible situations and there are very bad people who come out of very good situations. And so people are what they are because of decisions that they make, not the circumstances that surround them. And so we will have these millions of people who will turn against God at the end of this 1,000 years of peace. It's a period of darkness, it's a very brief period of darkness. It is not Jesus who comes to deal with them. It is the fire from God that falls on them from out of heaven. And it is the Holy Spirit then who deals with that. So now listen to this. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. So the light comes right after this brief period of darkness. God permits this period of darkness, and I believe that this is when Satan falls. Genesis 1-2, right here at the very beginning, because he had fallen uh, before Adam was created. Adam was created, he was given dominion over the earth, but Satan fell right in here in these early stages, and I think that's the reason for the darkness. So it's God saying to us uh, that don't worry, there there was darkness at the very beginning, I dealt with it, I followed it up with light, and you're going to see him finish it off in light. So uh, this is what the Scriptures teach that this darkness is only temporary, and and there's not a lot of attention paid to it. And, and I love that because it's God saying, listen, uh, don't get uh, worried about this. You know, when Elijah flees from Jezebel and goes all the way down to Mount Sinai and goes up onto the cave and Uh, God calls him out to stand on the mountain, and God sends three different violent forces. There's fire, there's an earthquake, and there's a terrible windstorm, earth, wind, and fire. And maybe that's where the group got their name. But at any rate, God didn't speak in any of those three elements. He then spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And it's as if he wants to say, Elijah, chill, I've got this. I'm not going to get excited you may be excited about all of this, but this does not rattle me. It does not get me into an amazingly uh, uncomfortable mood. God speaks and gives his plan in a still, small voice. And so that's what we have here. God's saying, I'm not going to get uh, overheated about any of this uh, because I will deal with it. So this darkness is highly symbolic. Now, What we have here is the end of the paradise sequence, and it's the very first sequence in Genesis. Therefore, it is the last sequence in the book of Revelation. Now, as we move deeper into Genesis and we start going to chapter three, we're gonna get into a totally different sequence. It lasts for one chapter. There should be a reversal of that sequence in the book of Revelation. I'll give you a little hint. In Genesis chapter 3, man loses his dominion and authority on planet Earth. In the latter chapters of Revelation 19 and 20, we see the dominion regained. And so there is a complete reversal. Now we're seeing these patterns where it is predictable that one thing must come before another, before another, before another. So if we follow Genesis carefully, we can gather some idea of what will happen in the last days and the order of certain events so that we need not be surprised. Now, I don't think that it's such that we can pinpoint to an exact year or exact month, exact day, that something is going to happen. I don't think that the Scriptures teach us this. But one of the things is especially clear. Times and seasons should be something we know and thoroughly understand because the Scriptures teach us that we know times and seasons. So as we go further into this, we'll get into it in detail. And so make sure that when you get done with this, you go back through the Scriptures, write them down, look at them, read them you know, the best way to really take a teaching to yourself is to make notes of it and then reread it to yourself. That's how you really learn it. Don't just look at it and say, oh, that's too deep for me. I'll never be able to get it. If you take that approach, I think you're going to make a mistake. And the other thing is this particular teaching is something you probably ought to listen to or at least watch on video. And take notes. I'm not so sure that it's something that you'll get the most from just riding in your car or just listening to by audio. I think it might be something that you may need to really dig into. Uh, maybe listen to it by audio after you've gone through it a time or two visually, uh, but really pay careful attention to it because it's not something you could pick up and gather casually. Well, that's all the time I have for this particular sequence, but we're not done. we got many more to come. Thank you.